The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. And I think there's a few folks here tonight that weren't here last week. And uh, most of you know that Steve and others are, who are part of the audio team and Gabe, who oversees it, um, were recording Monday nights. And so if you miss any of the Monday nights, this is a longer course than normal, 11 weeks. So don't worry about that. If you have a family obligation or out of town or whatever, the commitment is if you can come, you come. But if something comes up that you have to do, then don't feel guilty about missing the class. And then you might want to listen to the guided meditation or the talk or both. And generally the team of volunteers get those talks up um, you know, in about a week's time. And uh, they may not be up on the Buddhist Studies website, but they'll be under the normal Dharma Seed site where we have all of our ta- recorded talks up there. Is that right, Gabe? Yeah, so just go to dharmaseed.org and you can link to it from our website to hear those talks. And so just to give you a sense, because we're really working on these important five qualities of mind, of faith or confidence, energy, effort, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration or stability of mind, and wisdom. But in terms of your formal sitting time, uh, you might find it most useful sort of picking up what what I've tried to do the last two weeks, but there are many ways to do this. You know, generally the way your mind likes to do it. Some of you have been meditating for decades, so you'll, you'll have your own strategies. But using whatever meditation themes your mind likes, let your mind come into a beautiful, balanced state. And then when you have some stability in that beautiful... That, I, I know it doesn't always <laughs> go this way when we sit, so I have a mind too. <laughs> but when you can, I mean, that's the intention, right? To get to that place where the stability of mind is quite beautiful. And then notice that that beauty and power and balance of that mind, that heart, has these five qualities active and in balance to some degree. So you just sort of like, there you are in a good place. 15, 20 minutes into your set, mind feels pretty balanced, pretty strong, pretty stable, pretty expansive, not afflicted by doubt, not afflicted by sleepiness, not afflicted by restlessness, not afflicted by wanting something to happen or aversion, trying to get rid of something. So it's in that nice place we call samadhi. And then notice how, like, Because by noticing the five, you'll strengthen these qualities of the mind. And they'll come into a deeper, more resonant balance just by noticing. Because the noticing, you'll notice if one's stronger than the others. And then that will, just noticing that will support the ones that are a little weaker to come in the mind, come into better balance. Right? Does that make sense? So I've been using the Brahma Viharas. Last week I especially uh, emphasized the fourth equanimity as a sort of radiant, like really using that expansive, 
boundless quality of equanimity as a meditation theme, a meditation object, keeping it in mind. You can even move uh, to some of the Buddha's uh, instructions on meditating on emptiness, right? So you notice the sense of space, so from equanimity to space, from space to sort of the space of knowing, the space of consciousness, and even then the empty, like the mind that is empty of selfing. So this is a traditional way to begin to reflect on emptiness. So that's even, will have even more stability for some people at least than loving kindness as a sort of basic theme. But whatever works, that's the point. And then save at least, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes at the end of the set to just sort of go through some of these five, maybe go through all five, and then whatever one might seem weakest, then maybe just get interested in it. And, and then your study, that the things you're reading and the talks and the discussions in the small groups, some of that information will just naturally pop into the head as you're reflecting on energy, like what energy is. What is skillful energy in this moment? What kind of effort actually supports balance? And what kind of effort screws it up, right? Because there's bad effort too. You know, there's effort that is too tight or too lax. And that effort doesn't help. But just the right kind of effort does help. Same with mindfulness. And so we'll really get a sense there in real time what the Buddha means by these five qualities. Because the inform- instead of starting your sit with the information, use what you've already learned from meditating to get yourself into a balanced place, a relatively calm and stable place of awareness, and then investigate these five qualities. Make sense? Any questions about that or comments from your sit tonight about that approach to meditation for these remaining weeks of our class? Make sense? And, you know, when uh, some of you know the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness and the four foundations, right? There's awareness of the body, awareness of feeling tone, awareness of the mind, and awareness of these particular maps, seeing the hindrances, putting them aside, seeing the awakening factors, strengthening that strengthening them, right? And then sending the mind in the direction of liberation. That's the fourth foundation. So this third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, it's really about, uh, in part at least, sensing the wholesomeness of that stable, expanded mind, a mind that's not fixed, right? Because generally our mind, when our mind is fixed, Greed, anger, and delusion is operating, right? Because you need that in order to get tight about something. You need greed, you need aversion, you need to be deluded or distracted in order to be tight. And so when the mind isn't under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, it expresses this expansive, open, non-afflicted state, right? So that's why these qualities of love you know, are so central to understanding meditation, the formal part of sitting practice, because these emotions we already have some trust in and experience in, and we know the difference between 
kind of a natural, authentic, expanded state of being friendly and being really tight and closed and angry about something, you know? I mean, it's so obviously different, the sort of constricted nature of me fuming about something. If we, if there's even a moment of awareness, we'll see like, oh, that's a very constricted, tight place. And then when we're in a kind of a more naturally, natural, friendly, loving, appreciative, compassionate state, it just has a totally different feel. It's like, even if, you know, I have a, like I mentioned Steve Armstrong, one of our teachers, someone I teach with, but for many years was an important teacher of mine um, who's um, just found out he has brain cancer, just finished his surgery last week and will be starting his chemo and radiation very soon. And uh, I might have a particular person in mind that evokes the compassion, right? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a hassle, you know, and the uncertainty of that and the, just the hassle of, you know, having a plug in your head from where they removed the tumor and, you know, having to drive in every day to get your radiation and have to take a pill and, you know, using toxic things to get rid of things and, you know, all of that whole medical dance that people have to do when they have uh, an aggressive cancer like that. But the, um, the thing about compassion isn't about getting locked in, right? So it's really important, like if we're... Compassion, like I mentioned in the guide meditation, is a beautiful quality in the mind. And because it's beautiful, the mind comes into balance. It's a wholesome state. It's not a quality or an emotion that disturbs the balance. It's an emotion that supports the balance. And when the mind's in balance, the mind notices that it's that just the very nature of the mind is to be inclusive, to be boundless, to not kind of create divisions, door, you know, walls, who's in, who's out, what's okay, what I what I like, what I don't like. When the mind is uh, being pushed around by our likes and dislikes, that's not an expanded state of mind, a wholesome state of mind. That's an ordinary state of mind under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion. Right. So that the, when greed, anger, delusion isn't dominating, controlling the mind, it has a very distinct flavor of expansion because the things the um, qualities of mind that create constriction and separation and boundaries and this and that and good and bad, dualistic notions, they're relatively absent from that mind for moments at a time, right? And so part of what we're noticing is the difference. And so when we can get in a place where the mind is sort of healed of greed, anger, delusion, then that's the time to get really more clarity about what these five factors are. Because it's the knowing them, like really comprehending what mindfulness is, what energy is, what concentration or stillness or stability of mind concentration is, what wisdom is, what faith is. And then when the mind knows what it is, then even when the mind is in its more ordinary state, you know, being pushed around by greed, anger, and delusion, the memory of knowing what those five qualities are, it's like a wormhole back to it. Because now my mind knows what faith is. So just remembering that there is this thing called faith, 
I start to feel it, find it in the mind, and that strengthens it, knowing what mindfulness is. So this kind of learning basically um, replacing any notion of feeling helpless with your mind or somehow thinking that my mind is a mess. I mean, it is a mess at times, clearly. But that's not the whole truth of our heart or our mind, right? So I'm using mind and heart as the same thing. So we want to start, this is really the seed of faith, that this mind-heart is capable of a beautiful, resonant balance. A balance that's not so easy to topple over into a more negative, afflictive, you know, reactive, fragile state. And we hopefully can remember times when we, the mind, the heart, naturally came into that balance. But don't worry if you can't, because the whole point of sitting every day and coming to the class on Monday nights whenever you can is to start having experiences where, oh yeah, this mind, now in this moment, is definitely more in the direction of the balance that Mark's been talking about or the Buddha talks about than how it was most of the day. Right? So we're really starting to notice because we're studying this and we're thinking about it and we're hearing about it, to notice like the difference, you know, you know, this is an unskillful mind, this is a reactive mind, this is a mind that is definitely being colored by greed or definitely being colored by aversion. This mind is relatively speaking not so much pushed around by greed or pushed around by aversion, not so disconnected or distracted. Oh, maybe this is in the direction of that balance that the Buddha was talking about, that stability that the Buddha was talking about. I wonder if there's faith that I could recognize. What would confidence in this mind, where is that? Where is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This mind recognizes that this mind is wholesome, and that feels like confidence. That's what they mean by faith, right? It's a direct, right? It's not like borrowed faith, faith we believe because someone told us to believe. It's like we actually see, oh yeah, this heart, this mind is capable of being beautiful, skillful. And even though I can't realize that in every moment of my life, I know it's possible So even when it's not in balance, not that skillful of a mind, you see, I have an incentive to say, well, what's in the way? Because I have that faith that that it's possible for it to be in this beautiful, balanced, radiant, clear, discerning state, then it always sort of begs the question, well, what's in the way? Why can't it be that way now? Not in a judgmental way, but just because We would be curious about that. Just like when we're sick, you know, we got a bad cold or something. We remember what it feels like to be healthy, you know, and have energy and, you know, not a headache and not stuffed up or whatever. So it always begs the question, well, honey, what can I do? You know, like we're talking to the body to sort of support this body coming back into balance. You know, well, maybe I'll drink my elderberry juice or I'll, you know, do my neti and pour water through my nose or, you know, all these things we do to go to bed early or, you know, do a, take a steam, you know. 
put some eucalyptus in the hot water and towel over and breathe in some eucalyptus fumes to loosen up the mucus and then sinuses. You know, so we, it's the same thing. It's just not on a gross level, like we take care of the bodies on a more gross level. But it's the same way with the mind. And this is the skill set we're really interested. And just, you know, as a prompt, what really supports these wholesome qualities arising and coming into balance is knowing what the wholesome qualities are, right? Just that memory. So <clears throat> memory, like remembering faith, the experience of faith, not the concept of faith. Remember, remembering when you've noticed that confidence, when you notice that quality of energy and effort, wholesome energy and effort, when you've noticed that mindfulness, mindfulness in a more technical sense, like the capacity to keep something in mind, to not forget what the mind is doing. You know, as opposed to, oh yeah, this one, and then you space out and you're lost for 10 minutes. Saying, oh yeah, what am I doing? Oh yeah, I'm doing this. But mindfulness is like keeping in mind, not forgetting what we're trying to do, what the purpose of whatever it is we're doing. So it's not forgetting. And then concentration is really the unification so that all the parts of the mind are now working harmoniously for the same purpose. Like clarity is a common, wholesome purpose. Like every aspect of the mind is working to one end to see things as they are. Right? That would be sort of a classically, uh, classic Buddhist purpose to unify the mind around that purpose, to see things as they are, to connect with the present moment as it actually is. And then wisdom arises. The mind understands more deeply the way it is, the nature of the mind, precisely because of the samadhi. And the samadhi arises precisely because the mindfulness is keeping the present moment in mind. That's what, that's the skillful thing. Like, you can keep a lot of, mindfulness can keep a lot of things in mind. Like, don't forget to tell Gabe something later, you know. So, keep that in mind. But what we really want to do with mindfulness, what we want to keep in mind is, um, this is the present moment. That's what we want to remember. Oh yeah, this is being known. This is the present moment being known. We don't want to forget that. And to do that, we need the effort, right? This very particular effort and not to be diverted, the mind not to be diverted to other things, other impulses. No, 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 we're doing this now. And to be able to be willing to make that effort which allows us to keep this one thing in mind, oh yeah, the present moment's like this, which allows the mind to unify, become really sensitive, which allows the mind to have insight into the nature of the mind, you need faith, because faith allows us to make the effort. You see, so they all work together, these five faculties. And over the next 10 weeks, we'll be digging into faith, uh, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, but it's really important that we're taking these two and a half weeks because I'll come back and talk about them as a whole, right? And that's why I really encourage you in your meditations for these 10 weeks that we have left to really use balance 
stability of mind, beautiful mind as a meditation. That's your meditative theme. That's what you meditate with every day, whether you're only able to sit for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or you're able to sit for an hour. But really use that and then when it feels stable enough, won't be perfectly stable, then just we have you memorize these five faculties, just look for how faith is operating in the moment, how energy or effort is operating in the moment, how mindfulness is operating in the moment, concentration, stillness, that unification, like the mind is working in harmony. It's not like one part of the mind is working against the other part of the mind. But everything in the mind is sort of humming along together in harmony. That's what really that's why concentration has that wholeness or unified feel to it, because the mind is collected to the same purpose. So there's like no sort of awkward reverberation, no distortion in that mind. And that's precisely why that mind can see things as they are, because there's no distortion. And then that's what supports insight. And then, of course, when there's insight, we have more confidence that this activity we call you know, awakening practice is useful. So there's more faith energy, more confidence. Oh, yeah, this is really helpful. I really understand my mind better. And because I understand my mind better, I know how better I ought to be a human being to be a partner, to be a citizen, to address the suffering in my life and in the world. So we're willing to make more effort. And with the effort, we're able to keep the present moment in mind. And keeping the present moment in mind, concentration, the stability of mind strengthens. More stillness, more sensitivity. With that sensitivity, more insight, more faith, more energy. And it just keeps, you see, it's like this is the engine of the awakening process. Now, the Buddha used different models to talk about awakening as a natural process. And this is so interesting that, you know, the Buddha, because his central insight, you know, if we had to put it into words, is is that whatever this is, it's nature, it's not self. There's no sort of central agent to whom this belongs or who's responsible for this. It's just these different webs these different strands of nature playing, acting out together, right? So because of that deep insight that there's no permanent entity anywhere to be found, he had to describe how it is that human beings end up suffering and how it is that human beings become free as a natural process, right? Because as long as human beings think that suffering is because I'm being bad, right? Because that's how we feel. Like when we notice we're sort of in some obsessive pattern or acting out in an unskillful way and causing ourselves and maybe other suffering, it always feels like I'm personally wrong or bad. And when we have a good sit or a place where we're feeling quite light and loving and skillful, it always feels personal, like, boy, I'm in a good place, you know? So, Right from the start, the Buddha explained how suffering is impersonal and how waking up is impersonal, right? So his explanation of suffering is impersonal was, I mean, there are different models, but dependent origination is the more subtle one, and we'll get to that 
in the course of our the six-year curriculum of the, that we do in the Buddhist studies. We have a whole course on dependent origination. And it's just the Buddha describing suffering, you know, the circles of suffering, of samsara, that that's just a, you know, conditional, lawful thing, that these sort of reverberations or these loops that we get in. We know this. I mean, we see how we get trapped in these cycles where something's happening and we relate to that something in ways that cause suffering, right? And then because we're suffering, cause us to relate to things in unskillful ways, which cause more suffering, and it just goes on and on and on. And there's also ways to relate that lead to the end of suffering. And these five faculties is one of them. And the key is one way or another we have to bump into an experience that helps us sense, have confidence or faith. If you, you know, some of people don't like the word faith. That's totally okay. Use confidence or conviction or other words you can use. But we have to bump into some experience that at least opens our mind that whatever we need to experience real happiness, real peace, is right here. We don't need a different life, a different set of circumstances. We've got what's needed. And it's really important because, you know, some of us have a more easy, privileged life. Other people have difficult lives, right? They have cancer, or they're in poverty, or they've been oppressed in one way or another, or have some uh, deep wounds from abuse or some other terrible things that they've had to deal with in their lives. But we have to uh, open, because one of the things, if we've had a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, we can become arrogantly certain that we can't be happy because of these circumstances. So we need a crack in that certainty, that arrogant certainty. doesn't mean that there aren't deep wounds or there isn't suffering or difficult circumstances. But we need a, a willingness to have an open mind that there's a way of being even with difficult circumstances that will allow for resonant release, peace, happiness, ease. Because if we don't have that crack, we're not willing to make effort. Without effort, we can't keep the present moment in mind. Without that continuous present moment awareness, things don't really, the mind, the heart doesn't really settle down into a kind of a more stable mind, which allows for that clarity, that discernment and insight, the deepening of wisdom. So a spiritual awakening, if you want to call it that, depends on that seed of faith. Often it's just borrowed initially, you know, this is a great thing about running into a human being who had a difficult life, who seems to have learned a thing or two, seems to have some peace, some fearlessness, some really beautiful qualities. Because they can, be, they can inspire us, like, oh, if this person can do it, maybe I can do it too. Whatever they learned, maybe I can learn that too. And each of us, you know, as we sincerely do the best we can with our practice, we can be that person for other people. 
you know, basically people who, you know, are just getting started, but we're one step ahead or two steps ahead, you know. But we can sort of model, like, what is it like to be a human being with a mind that was conditioned by culture, you know, conditioned by testosterone or estrogen and all of the conditioning we have as human beings that make us the way that we are, imperfect. (laughs) I mean, in terms of our mental conditioning and even biological conditioning, right? We're basically beasts, beasts trying to survive, willing to eat other beasts, you know? Willing, you know, like when we look objectively how power keeps playing itself out, not really averse to oppressing others. It's like, kind of comes with the territory of having power to use it, even if it means, using it means, you know, taking it away, taking power away from others, because you have power. So this is the world we live in and how suffering perpetuates itself. And in that, are we willing to open to the possibility that we can be completely unafraid, completely kind and loving, skillful, powerful? I think I like using the word powerful a lot because a lot of people just, I think, stereotypically, we think about spiritual awakening as some kind of anemic uh, Martin Luther King has this great little teaching. I don't have it with me right now, but you can track it down. Like if you Google Martin Luther King, love and power, like those words, he has this great little teaching about how love without power, I don't know if he uses the word anemic, but it's, a, it's something like that, and power without love is abusive, but I'm not sure what the word is, but something like abusive. right? But together, they belong together. Love and power belong together. And I think this is really what this engine, you know, the five faculties, it's just a more sophisticated, nuanced way of talking about power, the power that comes from a mind that, a heart that is really in balance. So it's expressing its wisdom or love, you know. Love and wisdom are really flip sides of the same thing. So we're going to have small groups in a few minutes. And I thought tonight, I I just have a few themes, and you can just reflect on them as I mention them now and just see what might make sense for you to bring up in your small groups. And I'll say a few things about, well, maybe I'll say some things about the small group first and then go through the themes that you might talk about when it's your turn. Because it's it's a real interesting and important practice, and hopefully you'll use it not just when you're here for Buddhist studies, but anytime you're talking one-on-one or in a small group because it, it's a really, you know, we learn so much in having these authentic conversation, uh, conversations, basically sharing our own process with other people. And one of the interesting things we've all been learning is, you know, in order to really show up when we're listening to another human being, it's interesting that if we're very present with the body, intimate, just feel the body sitting there as you're listening to somebody, you'll hear them better than if you're sort of like glomming onto them 
really trying to hear, you know, it's like using some form of tension, like even you'll notice like you're staring at them or you're sort of like tensing your ears. But instead, if you just relax into the sensations of your body, and because we're all, to some degree, relatively good at being intimate with the body. And the interesting thing about awareness is if you're intimate with one thing, it's a relatively small step to be intimate with everything, including what the person is saying, who's you know two and a half feet away from you. So just experiment with being really present in your body and see if that supports you really hearing the person. And you're, you, the idea is to be open. You don't need to give feedback to the person. You don't need to nod. You don't even need to look at the person. You know, you might want to lean in just so you can hear. And the, as close as you feel safe to sit, it means you don't have to use very loud voices, which means you're not going to be disturbing any of the other small groups around you. So just see what feels socially acceptable when you sit close together like that. Say your name, even if you think everybody knows. And even if you have name tags, just everybody say their name. You might want to give your gender, the pronouns that you like to use. I know some of you aren't familiar with this, but it's, it's something that we're trying to remember at Common Ground because even though you may not know these folks, there are people who are regular community members who aren't comfortable with the binary pronouns of he and she or him and her. And they'll use they and them, or they might use even zir, zir and z and zir, right? So you just, it's just kind of hard, especially the younger adults, it's just more common in those generations, just to check in, because you're going to be in the open discussion time after everybody has their time. You're going to have, and you'll just assume you know, like what someone's gender orientation is. And one of the things or some of us are waking up to, is gender is a construction. And it isn't for us to tell people what their gender is. <laughs> you know, Everybody gets to determine what that is. And it doesn't exist in a binary way. That was some you know, culture sort of came upon that. And obviously, you know, there are reasons for why culture sees things certain ways. But we can be more open and flexible. And if this is kind of new... It's really good work to uh, to realize how hard it is to be beginners and to learn new things. So this is a good place to do that. So you know, and the thing is, if you do it and you just say he and him or she and her, and you feel like oh, I don't need to say that's obvious, but it gives permission for people to live the way they want to live and be who they want to be. So see it as a, just a simple gift you give to some of the community members. And of course, we hold what's shared in confidence. We're not offering advice or doing that open time, uh, discussion time at the end. You know, you might share like do a riff. Oh, I heard you say this. That reminded me of this. But don't try to fix anybody. Really catch yourself like if you want to give advice. You know, you could say at another time, you know, hey, I have some thoughts about what you said. Let me know. But really give them space. Like, don't immediately, because they're going to, it's hard to say no. Just reach out to me if you want my advice, and then walk away. (laughs) (laughs) And even that I'd be careful about. 
But then that way it's up to them. They've got to seek you out. Say, you know, I really do want to hear what you have to say. It's also good, like, I'll ring the bell for any group that's within earshot, but if you're in one of the four corners of the building in your small group, then make sure somebody has their cell phone to keep track of time. So it's three minutes per person, and that usually leaves about five or seven minutes for open discussion time at the end. We usually try to have three people per group. And here are the themes I thought might be interesting to talk about. Some of these will be obvious because we've been talking about them. So I mentioned last week, for those who weren't here, just this interesting question. Because in Buddhism there's some misunderstanding, like this idea that the mind is essentially pure and beautiful. And so just ask yourself, reflect out loud in your small groups, like, is my mind kind of this wild thing? And wild in the sense, not that it's bad, but that it just expresses whatever particular tendencies have been triggered sometimes wholesome, sometimes not wholesome at all. But it's neither pure nor impure. It's just wild. It's just doing whatever is there to be expressed in that moment. So just like from your own experience, what is your mind? Is it essentially good? Or is it just this natural, wild unfolding of causes and conditions? Because it has real implications. If it's wild, then we need to train it. If it's good and we just need to trust that goodness. What is it? We want to say it's good, because that kind of gives us, takes us off the hook. Like, I just need to sort of find that goodness and trust it, you know. But if it's wild, then we have to train it, right? To avoid what's unwholesome, and to keep in mind, and to cultivate what's good. So it really affects like what we do with this life. Train the mind, or trust the mind. Another thought that, uh, you know, sometimes the five faculties are called the controlling faculty. So you could just share in your group, like when your mind felt really powerful, like capable of doing what life needed the mind to do. In balance, clear, not afflicted, you know, so nimble. And just to share some moments. And then out loud in your small group, what were the supporting causes that allowed the mind to come into that balance and to sustain that balance for however long, however long it lasted. That might be nice to share. So that's the second theme. I mentioned last week that the five faculties are onward leading. So remember, with confidence, confidence is that force that allows the mind to go from that seed all the way to discernment and insight where the mind becomes transformed. So just to think about times when you really felt that movement from some confidence to some application of your mind. You took something up, you trained the mind, and you got some result. And so then you were different because of that result you got. That's that onward leading, and it's just like, that's the whole point of spiritual life, right? Is to not stay the same, but to transform the mind or to transform the heart. So any way you've sort of felt some transformation, some confidence, some action, some positive result, that would be nice to share in small group. And then the last thing is just like any experience of equipoise because we've been using that as a meditation theme. So just like balance and what you know about balance, experiences of balance. Does that give you enough to kind of 
choose one or two of those things at most, probably. And then in your small group. And I think we'll have enough time. You can even take a couple moments of silence, the first person, and your three, and everyone can take those one or two minutes to kind of think about what you want. And then start the three minutes once that first person starts to speak. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.